Let's take our Bibles once again this day and open God's Word to the prophecy of Jonah, chapter 1. Let's read together Jonah 1, verses 1 through 16. And our text itself is the verses 4 through 16, but we'll read the whole chapter or up until verse 16, page 1067 of your pew Bibles. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship was about to be broken up. Then the mariners were afraid and each man cried out to his God and threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. But Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship, had laid down, and was fast asleep. So the captain came to him and said to him, What do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Please tell us, for whose cause is this trouble upon us? What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? So he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, Why have you done this? For the men knew he, that he fled from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may calm, be calm for us? For the sea was growing more tempestuous. And he said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea, then the sea will become calm for you, for I know that this great tempest is because of me. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to return to land, but they could not, for the sea continued to grow more tempestuous against them. Therefore they cried out to the Lord and said, We pray, O Lord, please do not let us perish for this man's life, and do not charge us with innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and took vows. So far our text. 
And after we've heard God's word this afternoon, let's sing in response Psalm 46, stanzas 1 and 5. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, Google Maps and GPS were invented as proof that we all have our destinations. Cars, buses, and trains all have places to go. Feet also have places they want to go. But they don't always need Google Maps or GPS to help them out. It's quite common to find in the newspaper or on social media the latest updates in the lives of celebrities. If you ever bother to read that part of the news or even just skim over the headlines, the only intriguing or educational thing it reveals is the typical pattern to the life of sin. Someone is lured onto the path of stardom and before long, wealth and fame bring sinful attractions. Their way of dressing changes, their ego gets inflated, They get into the nightlife, recreational drugs. They get into train wreck relationships. Marriages don't last. The children become sources of conflict. The pressures of sensuality, drugs, and forever being in the public eye lead to a breakdown. Feet have destinations. Now, even though the prophet Jonah hardly qualifies as a celebrity in today's terms, he still used his feet to pursue the wrong place. He boards his ship with the destination as far away as possible from where the Lord called him to be. Jonah is running from the Lord. And yet that pathway of sin seemed initially quite easy. He goes south to Joppa, and wouldn't you know it, there's a ship waiting for him. Ah, God's providence, he must have reflected. And as the boat pulled out from the harbor, no doubt he would have thought, I made it. No preaching to the hated Ninevites. Meanwhile, as William Banks writes, when a person decides to run from the Lord, Satan always provides complete transportation facilities. Jonah's folly reminds us that our circumstances alone don't prove God's blessing. Sometimes they actually reveal the hand of Satan, for whom it is not difficult to arrange opportunities for sin. And then sin always takes you farther than you imagined. But for those who are children of God, here is where grace becomes the most exquisite. God pursues his own. It's not possible for those who belong to God to flee successfully from him. The one who by faith in Christ has become a child of the God of grace and yet falters is one whose trip won't end in a train wreck. We never have the last word. And so the first verses of our text are rightly 
but the Lord. The Lord doesn't accept Jonah's resignation. In his sovereign grace, our God puts a stop to such a trip before an untimely end, just as he put a stop to his prophet's trip and redirected him. Now, this does not invite us now to presume upon the grace of God that we can blow it and expect him to clean up our mess. That's not living by any measure of faith. But God's word this afternoon calls us to recognize God's pursuing grace in the storm of sin and our continual need to throw ourselves upon heaven's mercy. So I proclaim to you this word of the Lord. The Lord pursues his runaway prophet at sea. We'll see the sin causing this pursuit, the silence during this pursuit, and then the scapegoat ending this pursuit. Well, Jonah, we saw this morning, doesn't want to go to Nineveh. He knows that God is a gracious God, so he knows if I do go there and preach repentance, they just might repent and God will spare them. Jonah, we said, doesn't want that. Jonah wants a God of his own making, a God who simply smites the bad people and blesses the good people, so to speak. But when the real God shows up, Jonah flees from his presence. But Jonah had not reckoned with the sovereign persistence of the Lord, who is always a step ahead of him and just won't let him go. Verse four, but the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea. Now you can see it in, the, in your mind, can't you? The Lord sits in heaven and with his hand, so to speak, heaves a ball of wind upon the sea. The word hurled, or here I guess in the New King James it's sent out, but the word is also, could be translated as hurled, is often used for throwing a weapon like a javelin. It's a vivid picture of God taking careful aim at the sea around Jonah's boat and with all of his strength hurls his chosen weapon with precision accuracy. Uh, today we, we talk of smart bombs and guided missiles, but these are nothing compared with God's precise chastisement. For this is one nasty storm. The sea turns into a mighty tempest and is so savage that the ship threatened to break apart. A more literal translation would be, the ship expected itself to crack up. Or as one author says, tongue in cheek, the ship is about to become a nervous wreck. The storm had such a ferocity that according to verse five, these mariners or sailors who wouldn't grow uneasy at the first sight of foul weather, they were afraid. They are full of frantic activity. Each cries out to his own God, and in their desperation, they even begin to jettison their cargo. 
It's quite something. We have here not only a natural disaster, but also an economic disaster. They've got a deadline to meet. They had to get these goods from point A to point B. And so these sailors lose not only their possessions, but also their profits. Not all on board, however, are frantic. The wind howls, the waves crash, the ship is threatening to break up, the sailors are reeling. What's Jonah doing? Nothing. He's gone down into the hold of the ship and he's fallen fast asleep. In fact, if the order of the story as told in the book is chronological, he may actually have gone down and fallen asleep after the storm hit the ship. There's good reason to believe that may very well have happened. Jonah's progressive descent echoes throughout this passage. The whole time he's going down. Verse three, from his initial location in the mountains of Israel, he goes down to Joppa, and then he went down into the boat, and then in verse five, he goes down into the inner part of the ship to find sweet sleep. And very soon, he's gonna go down to the depths of the sea itself. What a contrast between the sleeping prophet down below and the pandemonium above. Jonah is out of touch with his own peril. The sailors are extremely alert. Jonah is thoroughly caught up with his own problems. The sailors are seeking after the common good of everyone in the boat. They pray each to his own God. Jonah doesn't pray to his. Face to face with the reality of the Lord's judgment, Jonah preferred to continue to hide from God. Perhaps he was profoundly exhausted, drained by powerful emotions of anger, guilt, anxiety, grief. And even when the ship's captain wakes him up and upbraids him, Jonah still does nothing. Verse six, what do you mean, sleeper? Arise, get up, call on your God. Perhaps he will consider us so that we won't perish. No response. It's part of a prophet's job to intercede for people. But we could say that the last thing Jonah wanted was to bring himself to the Lord's attention. What we see happening here, brothers and sisters, is that Jonah's sin leads him downward and inward. Jonah's physical movements downward symbolically parallel his spiritual journey away from the Lord. And that journey also takes him inward, not only from people, but also from God. Well, isn't that what our withdrawing from God does in our lives also? It cuts us off from life and people around us. When we, at some, any level, greater or lesser, doesn't matter, but when we run from God, our lives do go in a downward spiral. 
We think that sin will bring us satisfaction and safety, but it always leads to some form of death, both in our relationship with God and with one another. For the truth is, every sin has a storm attached to it. That's not saying that every difficulty you experience is the result of sin, but the Bible does teach that every sin will bring you into difficulty. If we violate the laws of God, we are violating our own design because God built us to love and serve him. And the consequences will come. They may not be immediate, but they will come. Sin is like taking an addicting drug. At first it feels great, typically, but every time it gets harder to not do it again and to avoid the consequences. For example, when you indulge in bitter thoughts, it feels satisfying, does it not, to think about payback. But slowly, surely, it will enlarge your capacity for self-pity, chip away at your ability to trust and enjoy relationships, and it will generally suck the happiness out of your daily life. Sin, brothers and sisters, always locks you in the prison of your own defensiveness and self-justification and eats you up slowly from the inside. All sin has a storm attached to it. God's word says, be sure your sin will find you out. Numbers 32 verse 23. So are you running from the Lord? There are ways, refined ways, private ways, where a child of God flees from God's presence. For the one, it's cutting corners in his business practices. For the other, it's treating his wife shamefully at home while faking the opposite in public. For still another, it's refusing to honor the call to teach your children faithfully, consistently, lovingly in the knowledge of salvation within the four walls of one's house. Are you nurturing coddling sin in your life. Christians can be the most presumptuous in this case. We can think we are safe because we've come to know the goodness of the Lord. So we can feed, we can nurture a sin in our life while remaining complacent. God's gonna forgive me. Well, God is long-suffering, but Jonah's experience reminds us that God's holiness demands we covenant children of his repent of our sins. God knows precisely where you are and he will meet you where you are. And that's the good news of these verses, is it not? God is sovereign even over those who try to run and hide from him to come back to and to tweak that earlier quote, it's not ultimately Satan who provides the transportation that's waiting for Jonah and Joppa. 
It's God. When Jonah tries to run from God, he can only do so with the legs and the breath that God gives him. The Lord could have very easily stopped Jonah in Joppa. Instead, he provides the the boat for Jonah to get him onto the water so that Jonah can see, hopefully, with utmost clarity that he can never succeed in running from God. In his mercy, God sent Jonah's storm. It was a case of God's severe mercy. He was chastising Jonah to save him from further sinful folly. Sometimes God allows us to think that we can hide from him, that we can evade his demands. But the storm is coming, and the storm is sent to teach us how much we need him and how much he loves us. Deep within the terror of the storm, God's mercy was at work, drawing Jonah back to change his heart. God's mercy is there deep inside the storms of sin in our lives. And so, beloved, is the Lord chasing you down, pursuing you as he did Jonah, with your sin also endangering others around you because you're running from the Lord? Are you in a dark place, feeding sin, starving your relationship with the Lord? God's mercy is there deep inside the storms of sin in our lives. So we come to our second point where we see the silence during this pursuit. Well, in response to the raging sea, the pagan sailors sought desperately to understand its cause. They believed, and in this case quite rightly, that such a disaster must be the work of some God who'd been offended by human sin. And so they say in verse seven, come, let's cast lots, that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. Casting lots was an ancient ritual performed to discern, to receive, understand the will of the gods. These pagan sailors believed that some god controlled events or determined the course of ships. And so they throw these lots to get some help to resolve their dilemma. They might have thrown a dice or each of them put some marker into a container and shook it until one of the lots came out. In any case, the lot cast led to Jonah. And yet, they don't panic or immediately lay angry hands on him. Instead, they turn to him for information. He's the one that God's chose to give information about himself that might expose an offense against the gods. So they pepper him with questions. Please tell us, for whose cause is this trouble upon us? What is your occupation and where do you come from? What's your country? What people are you? Their urgent goal is to understand the God who had been angered so that they can determine what they need to do. They are actually giving Jonah full opportunity to 
confess his sin and identify his God. And so Jonah finally speaks up. I am a Hebrew. Jonah is talking to foreigners and that term of ethnic identification was used in foreign contexts. And he adds, and I fear the Lord. Notice that Lord here is in all capital letters. Stands for Yahweh, the covenant name of the Lord, Israel's God. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This is all Jonah says. But it's more than enough to terrify the sailors. They were shocked. They were trying to find out what local, tribal, territorial deity they had offended. And though in their ears this was a territorial deity, at least that's their understanding, they understand it as a big one. For we have to understand that many pagan gods were provincial, territorial gods. Philistines had Dagon, Moabites had Molech. The reach of these gods was limited. And these heathen sailors had heard about the Hebrews and the size of their territory. So they therefore realized the terrain that Israel's God governed. So they realized with great fear, this is a great God, this God of the Hebrews. And it is this God who's pursuing us for the sake of Jonah. That terrified them. And yet we have to pay attention to what's left unsaid. This description rightly left them afraid, partly because Jonah doesn't pass on the other side of the story. Jonah is a preacher of the gospel, but he doesn't sound like one. To the sailors, he had spoken, he has spoken of the might of God, but he doesn't tell them that this God is a God also of love and compassion. Jonah, you see, is really only answering the sailors on their terms. He explains to them God in terms understandable to the surrounding culture of the day. He doesn't breathe a word about the closeness the intimacy, the heart of the Lord. Oh sure, he does call God by his covenant name, the Lord, but to the sailors, that was just another name, like Molech, Dagon. Jonah doesn't say a word about its meaning. All the sailors know is that this is a God worth running away from because he's so powerful and terrible. Jonah's words are true, but incomplete. He is silent about the full character of the Lord God. And his claim to fear the Lord, well, that was better left unsaid. For there is so very little evidence that he actually was fearing the Lord at that moment. 
He is the picture of calmness. Does it not seem that way? In contrast to the pagan sailors who are appropriately terrified when they hear that he's fleeing from the presence of his people's God. You see, and we'll develop this more next week, Lord willing, even though Jonah's words were still theologically orthodox, Jonah had functionally given up on his faith in the Lord. You and I receive a lot of opportunity, no doubt, to use words and actions in order to communicate with onlookers. And we may indeed speak accurately, but it is possible that we don't, we fail to take the opportunity to get to the heart of the matter. We don't testify to the mercy of the Lord that we ourselves have come to know. Your coworker says, you know, I noticed that you pray before eating your lunch. Why do you do that? Your answer, well, I was brought up that way. True, but incomplete, is it not? Your neighbor observes, your children don't use bad language. Why not? Your answer, maybe. If they did, we'd wash their mouth out with soap. True. Maybe, but incomplete. And the list goes on. Has it happened that you have let opportunities slip through your fingers to get to the heart of your faith? Your God is not just a God who is sovereign over all things, as awesome as that is. Your God is also a God of grace. He's a God who's not above pursuing people. He's a God who forgives. Yet how often do we give an incomplete picture of our God? Or how often do we obscure his true beauty? Do you see how critical this is? Not to speak to the world in terms that they expect but to tell them that you serve a God who is full of grace. So many do not know God that way. They, don't, they haven't understood him in that way. They don't really expect to hear about the God of tsunamis and floods and hurricanes in that way. That your words, your actions, your attitudes, the way you deal with people, outside and inside the church, show who is the God of heaven and earth. And so we come to our final point where we see the scapegoat ending this pursuit. The sailors ask Jonah, what shall we do to you that the sea may be calm for us? Uh, It becomes evident now that Jonah's flight from the Lord is not going to be successful. He's not going to make it to Tarshish. But there's no hint of any attempt on his part to repent of his sin. Much less is there any attempt to seek a new opportunity for obedience. He doesn't offer sacrifices or make vows as the sailors do. He doesn't humble himself in sackcloth and ashes as the Ninevites are going to do. Instead, 
His logic is very simple. I have broken the law. I deserve to die. Verse 12, pick me up. Toss me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. Jonah, you see, has no desire to receive the mercy of the Lord. He would rather be judged by strict justice. And what's more, his willingness to be thrown overboard for the sake of the sailors might sound quite noble until you realize that in doing this, Jonah would still achieve his goal of frustrating the Lord's plans. Uh, He himself might die, but the message God gave to him would not be preached to the Ninevites, at least not by Jonah. And what happens next is rather remarkable. These pagan sailors had very little to thank him for since the storm was his fault, as he also admits. All Jonah had ever done for them was bring trouble. But they don't follow his wishes. Instead, they row harder, which is another reproach to Jonah. Jonah had closed off his heart to Nineveh, wanting to deny them the grace that his, his own people had experienced for generations. But in dramatic contrast, these sailors do everything they can to spare his life after he's refused to pray for them and has caused all the loss loss of all their cargo. But their actions fail. God causes the sea to grow even wilder than before and so as they prepare to bring bring about Jonah's wish, they prayed to the Lord. Verse 14, we pray, O Lord, please do not let us perish for this man's life and do not charge us with innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. And then they picked up Jonah, hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. And then awestruck, These pagan sailors who earlier had cried out to many different gods now feared the Lord, Yahweh, exceedingly, says verse 16. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord and took vows to him. They were transformed by their encounter with the Lord, with Jonah, and especially with Jonah's God. It's very ironic Jonah ran away, didn't want to be a prophet of God. He doesn't want to run the risk of converting the Assyrians. But the very first thing he does is convert a boatload of pagan sailors. These were not foxhole conversions. They were not temporary. The sailors made their vows after the danger passed. They weren't seeking after God for what he could do for them, deliver them, but simply for the greatness of who he is in himself. For Jonah, though, the Lord gives him over to his wishes. The bottom of the sea is as good as any place, as good a place as any to try to flee from God. The water becomes Jonah's death 
since he doesn't know that a fish is gonna catch him. Well, taking a step back now, we observe that in the broader redemptive context, Jonah's death looks both backward and forward. Looking back, Jonah plays the same role as the scapegoat on the Day of Atonement, which in the Jewish tradition is the time every year when the book of Jonah is read as part of the liturgy. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest would bring two live goats and cast lots over them. One goat would be singled out to die, while the other would be driven out to the wilderness. Those scapegoats bear the sins of the community and atone for those sins by death and by banishment into the wilderness. Well, in a similar way, Jonah takes a journey into the outer darkness and he's singled out by a lot to die in order to avert God's wrath and save the sailors. Jonah was a sort of scapegoat for the salvation of the sailors, a very imperfect scapegoat. He has his own sinful reasons for wanting to go into the distant wilderness, and he has very mixed motives for wanting to die. But his death looks forward also, finding its ultimate fulfillment in the death of Jesus Christ, the true scapegoat the spotless substitute who freely takes the role of both goats, dying for our sins and bearing the separation from God that sin always brings. What Jonah could not do, give his, give his life for the sins of the sailors, that was done by Christ who gave his life as a ransom for many. And Christ never ran from that. In fact, Christ was in full control of discharging the duties of his office. Remember that he too once slept on a storm-battered boat. But this storm was not the result of his rebellion, nor was he hiding from people as he slept. He slept in the peace of his sovereign might. So when he awakes, he doesn't pray to God to calm the storm. No, he speaks directly to the storm and stills it with the word. He's not just a prophet, he's God himself who has complete control over the circumstances around him. And that only heightens the intensity of the other occasion where we see Jesus facing a storm. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the oncoming storm of God's fearsome wrath was not related to his sin, but to ours. So he had every right to run away from that assignment, but he didn't. Instead, he bowed his head and he said, not my will, but yours be done. That was Jonah's problem. Jonah was not willing to say to the Lord, not my will, but yours be done. We too 
are all too often not willing to say to the Lord, not my will, but yours be done. But you see, brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus said it in your place. Jesus was willing to die as a result of saying, not my will be done. Instead of stilling that storm, Jesus went into the heart of it. Jesus was separated from light and life for conforming his will to the will of the Father so that salvation could flow from the Lord to rebellious runaways like us. So is the Lord God pursuing you? There is no reason to run from God. There's only room for crying out to your Savior and hearing him say to the storm of sin in your life, peace, be still. He will always be with you at work in your heart when it is hard and when it is soft, leading you away from your sins that beset you until the day that he completes the good work that he's begun in you. You can never outrun him. Instead, when you run as far as you can, you will find that he has run further and is waiting there to greet you and show you the grace you've resisted to welcome you into his safe harbor in Christ. Brothers, sisters, stop running and rest in him. Amen.